I want to talk about how Eli's going to turn into a monster. Okay, good. Reliably. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are all rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. They're just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot controller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's sports podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538, and with me in the studio, Happy New Year to Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. And on the other line, in Bristol, Connecticut, home of ESPN, the mothership, it's Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We should mention, of course, that Kate is our Old Lang Syne soloist this 2017, as well yes. as the SBNW columnist. Better than Mariah Carey's Ooh, solo performance. Neil, right? with the modern wow. pop culture reference. Well Very played, impressive. Neil. You know, I had to, I had to go there. Were you watching? Were you watching live as I was, Neil? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Although, if I was, I think I would have like felt the mortification just like coming <laughs> out of the TV. I can't. I can't tell which one was more stressful watching. Mariah Carey or Ronda Rousey? I couldn't. I can't oh, tell you. Man, both of them had my head in my hands. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's let's leave that there and get to the show. Um, on today's show, a lot of football playoffs. The college football playoff final is set. It is a rematch of last year's final: Clemson versus Alabama, Deshaun Watson versus the Crimson Tide defense, and the ACC versus the SEC. We'll talk about how we got here and preview Monday's final, which we will, of course, then break down on next week's show on, on next Tuesday. Uh, and then for a second segment, we will move on to the NFL playoffs, which look a lot different than we thought they would two weeks ago, at least as far as who will be on the field, because there's been so many injuries and those pesky Packers, because of Aaron Rodgers' guarantee, obviously have uh, snuck into the playoffs. So we'll talk about all of that. And then what has happened to the Houston Rockets? They are really good after being really mediocre. We will explore the difference that a season and perhaps a Dwight Howard departure can make. And then for our significant digit, we will talk about Ronda Rousey. Kate has told us she has some thoughts. Kate, can you verify? So many thoughts. Okay, good. Excellent. All right, let's, uh, let's get right to it. So Last weekend on New Year's Eve, Clemson shut out Ohio State in the matchup of the two and three seeds in the college football playoff. Alabama beat Washington with Alabama's defense. Before we get to the preview of what's to come, I just want to ask sort of a question. Is it just me or are these semifinal games in the three years that we've had them really lopsided? Only one of six have been decided by a, by a possession or less. Um, most have been blowouts. Does this tell us anything about how many good teams there are in college football? I was trying to sort of put that together where because we have these mediocre games, in some ways it suggests to me that maybe the playoff system isn't quite calibrated right. I, I'm not totally sure. Uh, I, if anything, it would suggest that is it, do you think it suggests that it's too big that they should have stepped well, with the, the BCS but then it hasn't always been the favored team that ends up kind of blowing people out and uh, we're used to in the NFL for example number 1 and number 2 seeds holding 
after the bye and getting to the conference championship game and no one questions, you know, whether the games before should be played, which I'm now sort of half doing. So, so it could be my own invention here. I think it's your own invention. Excellent. Although I do understand thinking, well, okay, are we missing something? Because you would, you would think that all this work would go toward four, three games, three games that are nail biters because you've got the clo- most closely ranked teams in the country. And we haven't had that, but it's hard to then suggest like, okay, well, should it have been Michigan instead of Ohio state in there was Washington kind of weaker than we wanted to actually admit like those, but then you've got no team to kind of place in there to slide in and, and make those games closer. Yeah, I think it's really easy kind of in hindsight to go back and, and re, you know, kind of game the, the rankings to think of what might have made a more competitive set of semifinals. But, you know, if, if you're putting yourself in the mindset of the committee at the time that they were having to make their picks, they can only work with that information, obviously. And also, it's only been three years. It's only six games. Uh, you know, even even among teams that are on paper the best teams in the country, sometimes unexpected blowouts happen and probably the long layoff in between the last time that they played and when they suited up again uh, probably doesn't help matters because, you know, some teams might be easier to prepare for than others. Some teams might be getting healthier than others at the right time. So I don't know. I, I think it's too soon to say. And I, I still think that four teams, traditionally, if you look at the number of teams that have kind of laid a legitimate stake at the end of the uh, season, the regular season, at being the best team in the country, four is typically a number that captures all of those teams a lot better than two. And and this might just be a season in which the top two teams really are dramatically, not dramatically, but better than any other of the teams. And I, I'm always reminded, one of my favorite podcasts that we ever did was when we were talking about Nate, your, the, your esteemed leader, your fearless leader, Nate Silver, how within his algorithm of like creating the March Madness bracket actually has baked into that algorithm substantially like preseason rankings. I had never, I always kind of considered them to be hollow because of the lack of games that were played that resulted in, in said ranking. But if you go back to August of this year, who are the top two teams in the college football rankings are pretty much by a long shot are Alabama and Clemson. I mean, depending on which poll you look at, but you'll get, you know, 50 plus first place votes for Alabama, maybe seven or eight for Clemson, but pretty much dominating the top of the rankings. And so now here at the end of the season, you've got those two back after some hiccups for Clemson, but perhaps it really is that we had it right in the beginning. And those two teams are just not, not like a, a huge leap away from every other team, but somewhat significantly better than the third best team. Yeah, and you know, that is kind of a unique situation. I think this is the first time in a while, uh, uh, certainly in recent memory, that that has been true, in which one and two in the preseason ended up being the two teams playing for the championship at the end. But at the same time, yeah, I, I agree with you, Kate, and I wonder if there's something about the changing landscape of college football in which it does seem like through recruiting and through being able to kind of entice prospects to come to the bigger schools that this might be a sign of sort of teams being more predictable just in the sense of, you know, they have so much talent and that's what the preseason rankings are 
are really kind of measuring and why they have value is it's trying to get a, a read on how much underlying talent there is on each roster. And then, you know, they kind of play the games and they see how that talent actually applies itself on the field. Uh, and so uh, I'd be curious to see going forward if in this kind of current era of college football, if there isn't more significance to the amount of talent and the amount of recruiting that kind of builds up on a roster now than in the past where it seemed like you know, it made me think about when Lavelle Edwards, the great BYU coach, passed away over the past week. His BYU, BYU team in the 80s was the last team from a non-sort of power conference to win the championship, uh, the equivalent of a mid-major, I guess, winning the, the college football championship. And I think it's gotten much harder if you look at even a team like Western Michigan, who came in undefeated into their bowl uh, against Wisconsin, losing. Uh, th- there are really aren't that many of these mid-major teams that can kind of legitimately stake a claim to the championship, and I'm wondering if the big conference teams like Alabama and Clemson are distancing themselves from everyone else in college football. That's super interesting, yeah. So let's let's talk about the two teams against one another. Before we do it ourselves, let's hear Mike Greenberg of ESPN talk about the two teams and the final. I am calling for the upset. I watched a Clemson team on Saturday night absolutely humiliate Ohio State. I watched them play all year long. Ohio State's a good team. Maybe they're not the greatest team of all time, but they're a good team. No one should have been able to do that to them. Clemson was that good that night. They played great. They do everything well. And in my opinion, Alabama... Every week you watch them and you say they're so vulnerable. I mean, to me, their defense is so good, but the rest of their team is so average... I believe that Clemson is the team that can do it. I am calling for the upset. I like Clemson to beat Alabama next Monday night. Okay, so I think there are a couple things packed in there that I think we should we should talk about. One is how much information there is embedded inside of Clemson's win over Ohio State by such a dominating margin. As Greenberg sort of pointed out, Ohio State has looked good all year, except for the times when they didn't. Um, and and uh, and so does a shutout mean something more? And, and the other is this idea that a complete hole beats an excellent half, essentially. And that complete hole being the Clemson team versus the excellent half being Alabama's defense. Um, just for some context, Al- Alabama's defense by yards per game this year was number one in Division One FBS play, uh, 248 yards per game, also number one in the points per game. They allowed only 12 points. In On the offensive side, it's much different. Uh, they're down at 31st in the country for, for yards per game. Uh, so there is really a difference there. Um, Clemson, Clemson's offense is better, uh, about 12th in the country, um, and, and the defense uh, isn't quite as good as Alabama's, but still number nine in the country. So it is a more balanced team. Neil or Kate, uh, Neil, let's start with you. You know, is there any truth to this idea that a balanced team on both sides of the ball is better? Well, I'm not totally sure. I think that if if there's anything to that kind of analysis, it is interesting that Ohio State was a team that kind of fit the same mold as Alabama in the sense that their defense all season long, at least according to you know ESPN's football power index uh, numbers, was better than their offense. They they had roughly the same 
quality of offense as Alabama, and they had uh, one of the best defenses in the country, not quite as good as Alabama, but they're kind of a similar team. So if there's a sense that if you can kind of manhandle a team that sort of looks like an Alabama-esque team and is also one of the best teams in the country, then maybe that applies. Uh, and 31 nothing is not something to sneeze at, but at the same time, I think there's a tendency with Alabama, and we've seen it especially this year, but I think in the past it's also been true, that because their defense is so good, arguably the best in college football history, the score seems closer than it would be if they had been kind of a lesser defensive team, but also a better offensive team. So, you know, they'll keep a team in the game because they'll have only scored you know 17 points or 20 something points and they'll have given up you know a field goal or one touchdown until the very end of the game and so it'll feel like oh my gosh you know it's still close it's still within striking distance into the fourth quarter whereas maybe if Alabama wasn't as good defensively they might have you know given up you know, 10 or 14 points, but they would have scored more and maybe the margin would have been bigger, but it wouldn't have reflected the level of domination because I do feel like Alabama can just shut a team down whenever it sort of, you know, not not when it wants to, but as the game progresses, it becomes more difficult for teams to kind of learn how to move the ball against them. And you saw that with Washington where they came out and they had a great, Nick Saban even said, you know, they had a great script of plays at the beginning uh, in their first few drives and they knew what to do. But once you get off that script and you actually have to be able to beat what Alabama has done to react to you, that seems almost, you know, that's something that we haven't seen teams do in college football consistently in a long time. And so I think that there is a tendency to feel like the game is close enough that if you could just score, you know, a couple touchdowns on them, but the problem is just scoring a couple touchdowns on them is doing something that we really haven't seen teams do. And I appreciate Mike Greenberg introducing the concept of any team other than Alabama winning this title because nothing that we've seen this year on paper or by our gaze has, <laughs> like what I did there, Chad yeah, Neal, gaze, very nice. general assessment, zero evidence. Um, n- none of that information suggests that Alabama is beatable. I guess the only information we have that suggests that they're beatable is like history and sports telling us that we never know for sure. Um, and they, this game, it, similar to most games, like it depends who I'm listening to. If I'm listening to Mike Greenberg tell me that Clemson is so well-rounded, I can get behind this concept that, that Clemson can beat Alabama. But then when I actually hear pretty much anybody else talk about why Alabama has not more, not just an edge, but perhaps even more than that over Clemson. I'm certainly going to get behind that idea. I think the one flaw in trying to say that Clemson is more well-rounded and then has an advantage on Alabama, I guess baked into that is the, is the thought that like Alabama's offense is a, you know, is a deficit for them. And I don't really, that that's not really the case when you watch them. Certainly they're not as electric and dominating as the defensive side of the ball, but they're also not creating so many mistakes and turnovers that they're hampering Alabama in any way. And so it's, it's if you're averaging out Alabama on both sides of the ball, it's still considering how dramatically, um, uh, dramatically better that the defensive side of the ball is like, you, you still have to lean toward Alabama. 
Yeah, if their defense is the standard by which their offense is measured, then I guess they are kind of, you know, lacking. But that's not the standard by which, you know, other teams in the country are measuring their own offenses, certainly. And another note that I'll say about the balance factor is that if you look at those same uh, numbers from ESPN Stats and Info, they measure offense, defense, and special teams. And Washington, going into the bowl season, looked like a more well-rounded team uh, given the, the the way that they had played during the season than even Clemson did. They had a slightly better offense, a slightly better defense, and both their offense and defense were both, you know, in the, uh, among the best in the country, uh, better offensively on paper than Alabama. So if you were kind of making the argument that uh, th- there was a well-rounded team and that that was the antidote to Alabama's style of play, Washington would have actually been sort of that the poster child for that even more than Clemson is. And if... Alabama can take care of Washington, it does kind of call into question whether that uh, well-roundedness is sort of the, the magic bullet that, that people are kind of talking it up to be. Perhaps. I mean, that obscures the different kind of quarterbacks on Washington and, and Clemson. And right. In Watson, you have, you have someone who last year in, in the final proved to be able to throw against Alabama's defense. And run. Uh, exactly. It's a different defense, obviously, but still, you know, a lot of the same, the same principles are there. For what it's worth, uh, the uh, 538 prediction of the game which doesn't use a fancy model really as much as it does just sort of take espn's football power index and, and do some comparisons um says that alabama will win 62 percent of the time to clemson's 38 honestly not as big of a margin as i thought there would be given the the kind of uh uh drumbeat towards the title that that it feels like alabama has had all season long so mike greenberg you have a 38 percent chance of being correct. <laughs> all right. That's all you can ask for in life, Chad. <laughs> let's leave it there and, uh, and move on to pro football. All right. Before we keep going with the show, let's get a word from one of Hot Takedown's sponsors. Hot Takedown this week is sponsored by Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. You've heard me talk about Blue Apron before. You're going to hear me talk about it again because Blue Apron delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door for less than $10 per person per meal. And these ingredients make delicious home-cooked meals. Some of those meals, for example, roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples, Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice, brown butter, and chestnut gnocchi with Brussels sprouts and pea shoot salad. You can choose from a variety of recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are never repeated within a year, so you're not going to get bored. You can customize those recipes each week based on your preferences. And they all come with step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And all those ingredients have a freshness guarantee. So check out this week's menu and get your first Three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash takedown. That's blueapron.com slash takedown. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. Blueapron.com slash takedown. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, the NFL season is over next weekend. The NFL playoffs begin here to discuss it is... 538's NFL predictions expert, Ruben Fisherbaum. Hi, Ruben. Hi there. So this is a weird 
playoffs from where I sit. You've got a lot of teams in that are new teams that we aren't used to seeing in the playoffs. The, the well, I mean, we've seen the Dolphins in the playoffs before, obviously, but for the first time in a little bit, the Dolphins, the Raiders, the Lions sort of haven't been a, a regular presence, obviously. And, and yet, a lot of the air seems to be taken out a little bit for me because of the injuries that the Raiders are missing their quarterback. The Dolphins quarterback is hurt, questionable, I think, to, to start in the playoffs. The Texans, we talked about Brock Os- Osweiler on the show a few weeks ago, and all of a sudden he's back, maybe starting a playoff game now. And, and I'm wondering, Ruben, as you sort of see, sit and see our predictions and how they work, uh, we have the Patriots at a 35% chance to, to win the Super Bowl, for example. How many grains of salt should we be pouring into all these sort of fancy predictions um, given the injuries, because the systems don't really reflect the injuries. Yeah, so it's true that our NFL predictions are based off of ELO ratings, which are based off of game-by-game game results, and so they do not account for kind of changes in personnel, most notably quarterback injuries. Um, one thing in ELO's favor for these rounds is that these are this isn't sort of a, a situation, maybe with the exception of the Raiders, where you have these great teams that lost a quarterback and now we don't know what's going to happen. These are kind of bad teams... These are kind of bad teams that have lost their quarterback. And so Elo thinks they're kind of bad teams. <laughs> um, I don't think that if the Houston Texans were riding into the playoffs with Brock Osweiler, Houston Texans got outscored by like 50 points this year. They're not a scary playoff team with or without their starting quarterback. And that's sort of true for Miami, too. It was a pretty middling team. So I think when you say these are a weird playoffs or a weird opening round of the playoffs, that's maybe a polite way of saying that it's kind of a bad... <laughs> first round of the playoffs. There's a lot of mediocre teams here that then have gotten even worse by losing their starting QB. And Ruben, do you have a sense for whether that's kind of particularly abnormal this year, that the the teams kind of at the bottom of the of the wild card round are worse than the usual fare? Or is it just kind of always the case that these kind of mediocre teams are who make it in? I mean, the AFC South has been a very consistent division for sending a bad team to the playoffs You've written year. about this before, I feel like. Yeah, and so it used to be that the, Col- the Colts the last couple of years would get outscored by dozens of points and would get lucky in some games and would make it in at 8-8, eight 9-7. Eight, and seven. This year, the Colts had a positive point differential. Good for them. The Texans got to be the team. And, of course, they don't make the playoffs. The Texans are maybe the third best team in the AFC South, which <laughs> is a terrible division. And so at least consistently, every single year, we have at least one or two teams. That is bad. And then this year, a lot of them have lost their quarterback. And so it kind of like – you think you're absolutely right that it sort of takes the air out of this first round, with the exception of the Green Bay game, which actually I think – it is a good one that people are pretty excited about. Right, and so that's a Green Bay Packers versus the Giants. Kate, can we talk about the Packers before we get to the Giants? Are you okay with that? That's 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 fine with me. I okay. allow that. So after uh, after a Week Eleven loss, Aaron Rodgers made one of these promises that, like, you, you know, the ESPN world and the hot take world loves to, to build up, which is that Aaron Rodgers said, "I think we can run the table after a Week Eleven loss," and sure enough. Guys, they ran the table. They won six in a row uh, to finish ten and six after uh, being four and six at, at the time of that of that promise. They beat some good teams to get in. I mean, they beat the the Seahawks. The Texans are a playoff team. Uh, the Vikings had flashes this year, and, and the Lions are a playoff team as well. Is this all about Aaron Rodgers? As I saw a headline. Today, somebody saying that Rodgers is the MVP, or is it because Jordy Nelson 
to sort of come back and, and come back strong in, in the tail end of the year from, from being hobbled early on. What, what's the key to the Packers' success here? Well, definitely Rodgers uh, had a better passing season than he did last year. He had kind of a weird down year, and it was kind of ironic that you know the Packers for so many years, especially most notably when they went 15 and one in 2011, they had this unbelievably outrageously great offense under Aaron Rodgers, and actually kind of a terrible historically bad defense, and that ended up sort of holding them back. Uh, in addition to some pretty bad luck, I think in close games over the years uh, in in the postseason. So it was kind of looking like their defense was getting better just at the time when Rodgers was kind of falling off personally. And this year, uh, especially down the stretch, it, it kind of reversed itself. And, and at one point, they looked like they were going to be the good passing but bad defense team. And then they became really good passing and passable defense. And that was kind of the secret to their, their run down the stretch. And also, they kind of, I don't think, uh, you know, he, you said that he made a, uh, a promise of some sort or, or said at least expressed the potential run the table. that they could run the table. Uh, but also, you know, I, I don't think it was uh, as tall of an order as perhaps it, it maybe looked at the time or perhaps it would have been uh, in, in other years if they had, you know, uh, had to play a certain stretch. And that, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There was, there was a stretch of four games in the middle of the season. The Packers lost four in a row that it really kind of sunk their playoff chances. And their secondary, their offense was mediocre, not doing as well as we expected to, but their defense was getting absolutely torched for like 40 points a game. Oh, yeah. Teams like the Titans and the when yeah, Washington. So Washington they, they lost by 30-something points to the Falcons and the Colts and 40-something points uh, to the Titans and the Redskins. Right, and so I think their defense really picked it up, at least to like a middling level. Right. And that's what you need when you have Aaron Rodgers, who played incredibly. I think also worth mentioning is that they have a... The, Green Bay has a lot to thank with for Detroit and Washington, which really blew the end of the season and gave the Packers a path to the playoffs. And the Giants, and here, Kate, we should talk about why I'm over were the here Gi- chomping at the bit, yeah. like yeah. grabbing the microphone. <laughs> go, go for it, Kate. <laughs> well, Ruben, I, I want your opinion on this conundrum that is Eli Manning for the Giants because what I'm hearing from you know a lot of people talking on TV about the Giants is that. The difference, the the variable for the Giants in the playoffs is going to be whether or not Eli Manning plays better than he did in the regular season because obviously the Giants' defense and the way they play defense, getting after the quarterback and that secondary, is at such a high level that I don't think there's a ton of people concerned about whether that defense is a Super Bowl caliber, caliber defense, but there is the question of whether the quarterback play is going to rise to that level. So I guess my question here is like, there is this myth that, like, oh, is playoff Eli going to show up? And I'm wondering if anywhere in the numbers, is there anywhere to suggest that, like, in the years when Eli and the Giants did win the Super Bowl, um, was there any uptick in his playoff numbers versus his regular season numbers? What about his regular season numbers this year? Is there any parallel to a previous year in his career? Is there any way to look at the numbers and say, here's what maybe we think we can expect from Eli? So that's a tough question. Um I think just sort of generally the way that I've always thought of Eli Manning and the way a lot of people think about him is he's kind of this tier of quarterbacks who I'm just going to use the word elite. <laughs> oh, no, you're not going down the elite level. Who's road, not are maybe you? quite elite, but clearly can have games and have stretches of games where he's an exceptional quarterback. And that was true of Flacco. People used to say that about Matt Ryan all the time, except this year he's been outstanding, obviously. He's been elite. So clearly Eli Manning is a good enough quarterback to 
play really well four games in a row and win a Super Bowl. He's done that two times before. There's no reason to think that he's any war. He's he can't do that this year, I guess. And sort of a to have a Giants team that has a streaky quarterback who can be good and a really great pass rush, that sort of rings the memory bells for some Giants teams of the past. So I think if I was a Giants fan, I would be pretty happy to have Eli out there right now, especially given the QB situation for all these other teams that we've already talked about. Yeah, that's kind of like the uh, uh, the kind of standard uh, take on Eli Manning is that he's a very high-variance quarterback. So if you have to have a quarterback who's kind of okay, but uh, you know maybe if he played at his average performance in every game, he wouldn't necessarily be good enough to win the Super Bowl because there are quarterbacks better than him. You'd rather have a guy who's just all over the place and you know sometimes he has really poor performances and going back to your question Kate he's had games in the playoffs where he had a quarterback rating of 41 in in a game in in 2008 no they they didn't win and that's the point is outside of his two Super Bowl runs in which he went 8-0 by definition uh, you know but they also came from the from the wild card round uh, he's 0-3 in career in the playoffs and he has uh, you know pretty terrible passing numbers in those games but in his in the Super Bowl runs he's had great uh, numbers and and he's gotten his interceptions under control which I think has been part of that also the the flukiness just to jump in there real quick I think if you are going to look at one thing to look at his regular season numbers and how they compare to earlier years and he was really successful. One weakness of Eli Manning in the past has been his interception rate, which has been off occasionally the highest in the NFL, and that has been under control this year. But I think there's a lesson here, which is that, you know, let's say there are really ten I'm just pulling that number out of the hat, elite quarterbacks in, in the league. If you can't get one of those ten you prefer a streaky high variance, as we'd say, five thirty eight quarterback, than one who is steadily that who's steady in his averageness, right? I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Why I think not? the one the caveat to that is one way that teams win the Super Bowl with bad quarterbacks is by having incredibly good defenses. And if you have an incredibly good defense, you really want a quarterback that's not going to blow it. You want the Dilfer who can right. who's going to be steady in his not in it, yeah. Had some interceptions last year. Peyton Manning was a mediocre quarterback, not a super high variance quarterback last year, with an incredible defense, and that that was a that was a legitimate playoff path for Denver. And you should, uh, you know, it should be said that according to Football Outsiders, the Giants had the second best defense in football this year. So, uh, you know, if the offense is what was holding them back, but it wasn't because of something really high variance like the interceptions, then maybe it's a little less likely that Eli would be able to kind of luck. So the his Giants way are the it. Alabama of the NFL, is what you're saying? Well, no, because Alabama actually has a good offense. So, hey. <laughs> so let's real quick. Talk about the Seahawks and the Lions, which is an interesting matchup, especially um, because you have sort of a Lions team that is on the way up compared to the Seahawks, which is on the way down, I would think. I would be comfortable saying the Lions are pretty bad. Okay. Um, Like, you think that this is a mirage? I think it's a mirage. The Lions had these incredible number of of fourth quarter comebacks this year. Um, My favorite set on them is they trailed in the fourth quarter in 15 games this season. The only other team that did that was the Browns. <laughs> um, they were 0-5 against playoff teams. I think the Lions had this weak schedule that they got really lucky in, to, to finish even 9-7 and seven against. And if they finished 8-8, eight and eight, we would just be talking about them as a disappointing playoff mess. I think but, this is a mirage. 
And, and Neil, you were saying the Seahawks may really be on the decline now as opposed to years past where they've had weak records. Well, yeah, for, uh, just in terms of if you look at their efficiency, and I'm going to use Football Outsiders again, uh, their defense-adjusted value over average, uh, kind of a comprehensive metric of how efficient they've been. They had been the number one most efficient team in the NFL in 2012. 2013, 2014, and 2015. This was like a four-year dynasty, even if they only won one Super Bowl during that span. Did they win? They won only one. measly Super Bowl. One measly And they Super almost Bowl. won a second, but they had a bad call at the line. Correct, yeah. Uh, 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 even though... Things can happen in the playoffs. They had consistently been the most efficient team in football. And this year was the first time since 2012 that they were not that team. They finished ninth, but it was like, you know, a shade over average, uh, not not this dominating force. So, you know, I agree with you, Ruben, that Detroit is not necessarily going to be the team that sort of uh, unseats Seattle uh, and, and stands in their way. But I think that they're much less of a team to be feared this year than at any time in the, in recent memory. Okay. Let's leave it there. We will uh, be back next week, presumably to break down some of what happened over the weekend. And then also to preview uh, what happens when, when the buy teams come riding in. And is anyone ever going to take notice of the Atlanta Falcons? I feel like every year, no one cares about the Falcons. I feel like Matt Ryan's about to win an MVP. No, people will mention that. Ruben, I like when you come on the show. You got some. You have some like strong bold, takes. You have yeah. tra- but takes, but backed up by actual evidence, which is something that's alien to me. More kind of a consensus MVP. So <laughs> it seems like it's going to be. <laughs> uh, all right, excellent, Ruben. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So to the NBA, where the team on the rise are is the Houston Rockets. They are twenty-seven and nine, third in the Western Conference, only a game back of the Spurs for second. This sort of came out of nowhere, and I just want to I want to take us back in, in time, the way, way back machine, to last year, to our live show at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, when we talked to Daryl Morey, uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, about what was going so wrong for the Rockets in the 2015-16 season. The reality is that that team last year is the same team now, and it's not like our group that had very good chemistry last year just suddenly doesn't. Um, the reality is we're not performing as well. A lot of the guys who played very well last year are not playing as well this year. Um, and we've had, whereas last year we had quite a few things go our way, uh, a lot of good decisions and a lot of good fortune. This year we've had maybe not as good decisions and not as good fortune. And it's tough. It's tough to be in the middle of it. It's tough to get asked on hot takedown because I like winning, you know, and we've done a lot of winning. It's just we haven't gotten all the way to the ring. Okay, I have to jump in there. Go for it. Because... I like the point. I remember at the time talking about, you know, the, just the point of like the luck that comes and goes with every sports season, regardless of sport. But the thing there that actually, if you read about his Rockets this year, that doesn't seem to be consistency is saying, hey, we have the same chemistry we did, you know, the previous <laughs> year from last year. But now without Dwight Howard, the, the talk is like, well, Ryan Anderson and James Harden playing together, the chemistry there, the way they enjoy playing together, that's really the fuel for this Rockets team. And so even when he was saying that last year, I was kind of like, really, though? Because the very fact that James Harden and Dwight Howard just seemed to be like cordially respectful. I think the quote was cordially bad. Cordially like bad. <laughs> like the, for us to try and believe that that doesn't have an effect and that doesn't have an effect 
in a game and in a style of play in which spacing and communication are paramount was it's tough to believe. And you can see now with the Rockets this year, a lot of it does seem to be an enjoyment and a style and the style of player that leads to good chemistry that is leading them to playing better. Right. I I think especially in the NBA, it seems as though we there's evidence that team dynamics and how long a team has played with one another and things like that really, really does matter. And so, Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like a cancer can be in the clubhouse in the NBA in a way that would affect a team in the NBA more than it would affect other sports. Well, uh, yeah, and maybe that's the uh, other side of the coin that we always talk about, one player having such an outsized impact in a positive way in basketball because there's, you know, only five players on the court at any given time and the plays can be directed through whomever you want instead of, you know, baseball going times through the order. Uh, Maybe by the same token, if, uh, you know, one player is messing things up, whether it's a bad fit and bad chemistry on the court or perhaps, you know, disrupting things off the court, that it can really have a noticeable effect. Because, like, it, it doesn't totally land for me just on, oh, Dwight Howard is a bad apple, and he was dragging down the Houston Rockets last year strictly from an interpersonal viewpoint. A lot of it seemed to be that the Houston Rockets were so reliant and still are reliant on three-pointers and also finishing at the rim. And I can see how, abstractly, it seems like Dwight Howard's the perfect guy for the Houston Rockets because you can have James Harden, you can have shooters around him, then Dwight Howard finishes at the rim. But then when you put Dwight Howard in a pick-and-roll, and he's rolling to the hoop, that is a standard defensive pick-and-roll that I think over years and years and years is like usually the option number one on a pick-and-roll is like the big man rolling to the rim. And what the Rockets didn't have, at least when when Dwight Howard was engaged in the pick-and-roll, is like flaring the way you see Ryan Anderson. So it seemed like it was a twofold, a a, miscommun- a miscommunication of styles within the locker room and then also seeming that Dwight Howard would be the perfect fit to execute this easy twos and three-pointer style of the Houston Rockets, but actually there being some sort of like cog lost in that transition. So I think you can't talk about the Rockets and what's happening this year without talking about the number of threes that they're taking, which is a historic number. They're currently taking 45.7% of their shot attempts are three-point attempts, something like 39 total uh, per game. The the record for a season is 32.73 per game attempted. That was set by last year's Rockets. So this is another interesting thing where something's clicking this year and uh, the strategy hasn't changed. In fact, it's only doubled down on it. Um, If the Rockets are to to finish with this kind of success – from from three point, it would be like light years beyond what what usually happens. And the Ringer has a great um, scatter plot uh, showing the the three point attempt rate, along with um, the difference sort of from league average to show how far away they are. And, and it's really startling. And so Neil, is this sustainable? I mean, we talked about Russell Westbrook, for example, and whether his type of game is sustainable. Is taking this many threes sustainable in the regular season and in the postseason where if you go cold, let's say for three nights, then maybe 
and we had, I think we had this debate about the Warriors too. Right. That's the eter- kind of the eternal Warriors debate, at least before the Warriors actually proved that they could win a championship, was the idea that a, a jump shooting team was forever doomed to have, and Mike D'Antoni, the coach of the Rockets, knows this all too well, that if you have such a reliance on the three, like his Phoenix Suns did uh, with Steve Nash, that... Uh, if you do have those cold nights, it kind of disrupts everything that you're trying to do. But uh, I believe it was Nate Silver that did uh, some research that showed that actually teams that rely on the three aren't really any more vulnerable to hot and cold nights or, or down performances in, in the playoffs than other types of teams, that it's it's just all about how you execute on offense and that the three is in general, uh, Daryl Morey is the prime purveyor of this uh, piece of knowledge, I think, that the three is the most efficient, or if you count free throws, second most efficient shot in in basketball in terms of points per shot uh, at the league average level. But another note that I wanted to point out, Chad, about that number, so, you know, 46% of Houston shots are three-pointers, that... It's not just Houston. Houston is taking it to this other level, and the old record was 39% that had been set by the 2015 Rockets, and then number two for a full season was 37%, which had been set by the 2016 Rockets. So the Rockets are doing what they've been doing, which is pushing this to its limit, uh, I think, and trying to find where that limit is. But if you look at the top 11 right now, if you include 2017 seasons in this, the top 11 seasons all time in terms of three-point attempts as a percentage of total shots, six of the top 11 are 2017 teams. Hmm. Not just Houston, but you also have Cleveland. You have Brooklyn. You have Boston. You have Dallas. You have Golden State. And you have Philly. And it's an interesting mix of good and bad teams, I think, also. It shows that doing this in and of itself isn't enough necessarily uh, to be a good team. Uh, you know, you can be an absolutely terrible team and still take a lot of threes. Uh, but you know, it's, it is true that Houston is riding this wave and they're still ahead of the rest of the league, but the rest of the league is also pushing this uh, at, at an incredible rate. And I, you know, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Harden himself has actually pretty dramatically revamped his own game, uh, not just in terms of, yeah, he's also part of this trend of taking more threes. 47% of his threes, uh, or of his shots are threes, and that's uh, bordering on a career high, the highest it's been since he was kind of an off-the-bench, do-everything guy with OKC as a 21-year-old. But also, he's playing point guard. He's uh, His assist rate is 53%, which is far and away higher than it's ever been in his career. It was 35% last year. And yet he's also managed to increase his efficiency in the midst of kind of uh, taking on this greater ball handling responsibility. And so I think that what we saw, you know, two or, uh, yeah, two years ago, we had this debate of should it be Harden or should it be Curry for MVP back in 2015? Because Harden's numbers and, and his overall caliber of play back then were just that good. Then last year, they kind of seemed to go in opposite directions. And Curry, you know, far and away had the best season of anyone in the league. And Harden had a down year. And I don't know if it was that chemistry issue that you mentioned, Kate, or just the way in which he was being used and the players to compliment him. But this year, he's back at that MVP caliber level. Uh, and and I, to me, that is 
probably the biggest driver of the change is that they're still not a good defensive team. They weren't a good defensive team last year, and they're, they've gotten a little better, but they're still not you know very good this year. The biggest difference is their offense is, once again, scoring at this incredible so rate so to make up the for the Rockets it. are the Alabama of the NBA. Okay, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I do think it's interesting to sort of compare Westbrook and, and Harden and their triple doubles. Harden now has nine triple doubles uh, on on the season, and it seems you know we talked about whether Westbrook's triple double was sustainable from an average you know triple double on a, a, an average triple double for the whole season was sustainable, but also sort of Westbrook's style of play because it's so much more so kinetic and and so physical. With Harden, it does feel a little bit. Different. Am I, am I wrong to think that that maybe Harden's new triple double world is a little more sustainable because it's not quite as high intensity because yeah. there are more threes? It, it does feel, Chad, as if like Harden obviously is in a high gear, but he's not redlining. Mm. It, you know, as you're watching him, you're like, oh, I, I could see him doing this night in night out where there's something about Russell Westbrook's play that feels like he's in fifth gear slash redlining the car, and you're like, oh, this can't last. But I, I've, it. At times, it might just be an optical illusion because that's how Russell Westbrook has played every game of his NBA career, and there's been hundreds and hundreds of them, and almost every one, I'm like, how does he have any energy for the next one? Right, and uh, you know, I think that if you look at the sheer amount of responsibility that Westbrook is being asked to carry, he has a 59% assist rate. So remember, we talked about Harden, 53%, being one of the highest marks in the league. Westbrook is another level even beyond that in terms of passing responsibility and his usage rate is 42%, you know, in terms of just measuring his scoring responsibility. That's way bigger than Harden's, which is only 34%. Mm. So if you look at all of the things that Westbrook is being asked to do, it's definitely a lot more things than, than James Harden is asked to do. And I don't know if we've, if we've ever seen uh, a player uh, certainly not in the modern era, be asked to sustain the level of responsibility on one team that Russell Westbrook is being asked of by OKC right now. All right, let's let's leave it there. We'll keep an eye on the Rockets as the season marches on. It seems like there's probably going to be a, a real force come, come the Western Conference playoffs, which is exciting. It's not just going to be the traditional... Too. I guess maybe they supplanted the Thunder in some ways as, as, the, as the third banana. Just pull the, the Thunder out, slot the Rockets in, That's I guess. Right. Okay, moving on to our significant digit. When a telling number from the world of sports is brought to us, and we talk about it today with that telling number, it's Kate Fagan. Kate, what do you have for us? The number I'm bringing to the table today is 48, as in 48 seconds, as in 48 seconds in round one of the bout between Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey for the bantamweight title of the UFC women's division. So, guys, I stayed up to watch this fight. I stayed up, and then I covered my hands for pretty much the last 43 seconds of the 48-second <laughs> fight because I could not take it. It was clear that quickly. It, w- it was clear from, like, three seconds in. I don't know if you guys have – I'm sure you've seen replays. I don't know if you stayed up to watch it. But, I mean, she just took a punch within three seconds, and – it was like all of a sudden she realized what taking a punch feels like again, and she went like down a very, very deep rabbit hole. I, I've been spending the last five days psychoanalyzing Ronda Rousey. And what have you come up I mean- Well, so here, here is what fascinates me is that if you read Ramona Shelburne, ESPN.com's Ramona Shelburne is 
the only person I, I believe that Ronda Rousey spoke to in the lead up to this fight because she put everybody, she put herself on lockdown and didn't do any media. It was so contradictory to the way she operated for so long. Right, and this career. is in a long magazine piece that we'll put on the, the page on 538 where, where Hot Takedown is hosted. And so Ramona spends time with her at this remote cabin in California. It's all very cliche. And a lot of the piece is... Rhonda and those around Rhonda are like explaining her ma- manufactured motivation. And I found this to be fascinating because I just think when you if when you look at an athlete and if you even have to ask them, like, why are you motivated? Then you already know that there's a problem. Like I, I Rhonda's like, I'm doing it for the girls. I, I'm doing it for revenge. I'm doing it to prove you can bounce back. And if and if you ask Amanda Nunes, it feels like she'd be like, I'm doing it because I need to. Like, there was just such a difference in, like, what motivates an athlete at certain stages and knowing, as you read the Ramona piece on Ronda Rousey, that what was motivating Ronda Rousey at that time perhaps was not reaching the threshold needed when you get in the ring with somebody and they're just going to beat you up. Like, it, it just the motivation didn't feel on par with what was needed. And I'm very fascinated with any time in sports we have the seemingly kind of unstoppable force. And you know that it has to end at some point, and the only question is kind of when and how. But uh, whenever it does happen and it seems so unlikely beforehand, trying to kind of dissect and figure out, like, was it a question of motivation or was it just a fact that, you know, Nunez was a lot like the way that Ronda Rousey had lost previously uh, in the sense that she, you know, wasn't really concerned with taking damage and taking hits, but as much as just trying to get people to the ground, trying to submit them. And our own Andrew Flowers actually wrote a story uh, in advance of, I think it was three fights ago for Rousey uh, when she was still on on that undefeated tear, uh, and it seemed like she would never lose, that her style and the armbar in particular was a style that was actually being phased out of of UFC. Uh, And so she... uh, It's interesting to think that in retrospect, you can kind of paint this narrative that she was actually kind of the last of a dying breed and that it has become so much more about striking ever since then that even though we didn't know it at the time, that she you know, was was doomed to eventually fight someone who was a powerful striker in in the first case, Holly Holm, and then now Amanda Nunes. Of course, that is also running the risk of kind of writing these ex post facto narratives. Right. Well, but when you you look at the stats that the fight metric kept on 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 the fight, I mean, Nunes has four times the number of successful strikes than Rousey had. And is this nearly, in the fight itself? In the fight itself, or near, in the fight itself, and nearly double the total number of strikes that Rousey attempted in the first place. So, well, it was just a total bloodbath. But right. I think if you look at the numbers even going in, mm. that the that the striking metrics were really kind of lopsided in favor of Nunes, and that that could have kind of been part of that uh, narrative that now it seems so easy to craft that she had this very large glaring hole that nobody had ever really kind of well, effectively. And this well, she didn't need to fight. She didn't. I mean, meaning she didn't need two levels. Actually, I mean that, and she didn't need to fight. Nunez still needs to fight. Rousey doesn't need to fight. Right, like literally, literally Literally doesn't need to to fight anymore. Which, in a sport like fighting, I find it hard to understand how you build up the motivation to fight when it's no, no longer coming from a place of desperation. And the second thing is like, yeah, we're talking about how many punches she took, as if like that's the only way to fight in UFC. That was the confusing part. Like. Ronda Rousey didn't need to take punches. I, I, there, she 
didn't seem to in any way have a strategy about how to get Nunes to the mat in any way. It just seemed like she was just completely cross-legged at that time and like didn't have a, an appropriate strategy. Kate, okay, it does bring up an interesting question about whether, especially in a one-on-one sport, and especially in such a physical sport, psychology does play more of a role than it would in other sports where maybe you have teammates and, and if you're off on a given night, that can be compensated for by, by your teammate. I do think, too, what, what Neil said sort of raised the question of, like, are we going to see Ronda Rousey as, like, as a historical Bay relic? Brick. Well, yeah, like someone who played the game, the, the game in this case, yeah. the sport yeah. a certain way, and the sport moved on and she wasn't able to adjust. And that should probably affect how we think of her as an athlete as well, which is that if you aren't able to adjust to the way the league is, is or, you know, to the sport is transforming, does that suggest that maybe you weren't as great as, as we thought you were at the time when you were really succeeding? I mean, I'm concerned even on a broader level because even discussing how Rousey might be viewed historically leads us to believe there will be a historical view of women's MMA. Mm. And, and this is not like any other vacuum created in the sports world. Like it, when Aaron Rodgers is going to retire in football, mm-hmm. nobody's sitting around being like, will anyone pay attention to the next good NFL quarterback? Like that vacuum is filled instantaneously. I'm not so sure that Ronda Rousey exits women's MMA and anyone's going to pay as much attention to women's MMA again as they did to Ronda Rousey. So there's a there's a concern on my end. It's like women's sports vacuums don't always get filled by the next star. Mm-hmm. That's all very interesting. Yeah, that, that sort of... What responsibility uh, she has to have brought this much attention in the first place? You know, should that be part of her legacy if the sport, if, if the women's side of the sport doesn't continue? Right, like, you could really be a victim of your own success. Yeah. In a lot I mean, of ways. think about the last year of UFC. We certainly paid attention to the Holly Holm fight to mm-hmm. some degree, but I mean, what was it? Maybe a, an eighth of the amount of attention. I know I'm trying to like randomly assign a number to it, but like it was dramatically diminished from the amount of attention that a Ronda Rousey fight gets. And even that was almost completely in the context of Holly Holm was the person who beat Ronda Rousey. So it's it's even then it was in relation to someone who actually wasn't even fighting. Right. All right. Let's uh let's leave it there. That was that was I think one of our our best sigdigs. We should move it? it to the top of the show. <laughs> um, all right. That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. See you soon back in New York. Neil Payne, as ever. Thanks, Chad. Thank you. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our podcast, what what do you call you, in the UFC? You're the title holder, the belt holder, right? Our, our, our podcast belt holder is Jody Avergan. Uh, we got production assistance from Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada, Tony, Tony's Arsenal Football Club. Came back while we were recording. Really? Tie three to three. Oh, wow. Against Bournemouth. Bournemouth. The point being that we should always record during Arsenal matches because clearly we're great luck. Uh, you can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. It's a new year. What should we be doing in the new year, listeners? What's that school type regular features should we be doing? Email us at podcast at 538.com. Tell us because we want to know. Find us on your favorite podcasting app on iTunes as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.